Welcome listeners to another episode of Listen, Learn and Love hosted by Richard Osler. Uh, my guest on today's podcast are my friends Tammy Carson and Marshall Shearer. Welcome to the podcast, you two. Thank you, Richard. Um, I've known Tammy for a while and I'm getting to know Marshall as we're preparing for this podcast. We're going to talk about an organization within Utah called Utah Foster Care. And um, it's an organization that trains and finds and helps parents that want to become foster parents. Um, a fair percentage of those kids, and we'll talk about that, are LGBTQ youth. And so this has an LGBTQ focus. And it's a podcast for those that are considering becoming foster care parents. Um, it might be a podcast for any adult that becomes aware of someone that's in a minor in a harmful situation, the process to reach out to get them help that might lead to foster care. This is an organization that directly um, usually deals with people in crisis. They'll talk about some of the players in that space. I'm also talking again about LGBTQ youth and the unique road they face in Utah and the work of Utah Foster Care to help all youth um, with a specific focus on LGBTQ youth. I've known Tammy for a long time. She's a mother, married mother of seven. Um, she just turned 50, so I'm going to still call her in her late 40s. Um, terrific person. <laughs> We've been connected for a long time um, in our community. I'm meeting Marshall Shearer. Um, back to Tammy. Tammy's worked at Utah Foster Care for about five years, I believe. Um, Marshall has worked at Utah Foster Care for about three years, but he's been a foster parent for about 11 years. So he's walking this road as a foster parent, bringing vulnerable youth into their home. He's married um, and providing a safe home for them. And um, you are doing, both of you, when I think of what the work you're doing in other foster care parents, I think of you know, Christ going to the most vulnerable, the most marginalized, and creating safe havens for them, in this case, safe homes for them. And so the work you're doing is so needed in our community. Is that okay for an introduction? Absolutely. Sounds great. So we don't, like, talk a lot of time, a lot ahead of time, listeners, and because we do so many podcasts, I just usually, as you probably get, just get our guests talking and then Hopefully, I'll ask the questions you want me to ask as you're listening to these stories. So that's my prayer. And we said a prayer before we started. I'm just grateful for these good people to be on the podcast. So I don't know who's going to start first, Tammy or Marshall. They're both pointing at each other. <laughs> um, yeah, so my wife and I, um, I, I am a trans man, and uh, my wife and I have um, about 20 years ago, actually. And uh, we kind of got to a point where we were feeling like we were having too much fun and <laughs> um, we were traveling and just kind of doing whatever. And we kind of felt like we needed to do something different. And so we thought about foster care and um, we looked into it. We got licensed um, and we our first placement was a sibling group of four and um they were wild and crazy and exhausting <laughs> um and out of those four we ended up adopting them a year later and out of those four two of them are also lgbtq um we have a son who's gay and we have a, a, a trans child as well and um it was really interesting because we, uh, before they came to our family, um, at least our son was, he, he, he wasn't accepted. Like his, his, um, he's, he's, he's a lot, he's very soft-spoken. He's very gentle. He's, um, uh, I guess in some, some people would say effeminate in some ways. Um, and he wasn't really accepted in his bio family for that. Um, he was called names and, um, you know, things like that. 
And so we, when we started kind of realizing that he uh, was gay, we, we just tried to reassure him, you know, it's, you know, Hey, if, if you feel this way, that's okay. We love you and we accept you. And, um, and he actually, um, <laughs> he kind of denied it for a long time. And even though we were very open about saying, you know, it's just fine. How, however you are is fine. We love you and accept you. And, um, and, but yeah, he, he finally got to that on his own and, and, uh, came out to us and we were like, yeah, we, we know. And, um, with our other child that's uh, transgender, um, you know, we thought, we thought maybe, um, he was gay as well. And, um, but the more, um, he moved around in the world, we realized, um, this child probably transgender. And so we kind of talked, um, with her about that and, um, kind of let her know, you know, what, what it meant and, you know, and kind of went over everything and didn't, we were really hesitant to push, um, something on her that, that she didn't feel or didn't understand or, or, um, believe in or embrace, I guess. Um, but we, we just tried to educate her and let her know, um, that that was, um, something that people experienced and it was a normal thing that um, some people experienced. And so um, after a few years, she came to me one day and it was so profound and it kind of still gives me chills. Um, she said, dad, I come to myself and I, I realized I'm, I'm a girl. And we were like, okay, so let's, let's go. And we, Luckily, she was in a really supportive school, and um, uh, so we worked to kind of uh, make things more congruent for her. And um, she's healthy, happy uh, kid, and just it's all who she always was. Really, like she's she's no different. She's just who she's supposed to be, and um, it's been neat to see that. And I think. Um, thinking, you know, had she gone to another family, like, I, I think all the time, like, would they have accepted that? Would they have helped her through that? And, you know, or would they have made her hide it or, you know, just made it harder for her? Um, and so I'm really glad that she came to us and that we were able to, to support her and, um, you know, yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of our family's story. I'm also trans and I actually transitioned along with her. Um, I, I knew I was trans, but I hadn't come out like, oh, I, I, most people I was close to knew that I was, I considered myself transgender, but I had no plans for transitioning. I was, um, I was LDS and, um, just didn't feel like that was, something I could do and um, got to a point where I felt like it was really necessary. And, um, and it was interesting because we um, had our, our youngest daughter that we adopted. She was in foster care with us at the time. And she was like, are you a boy or a girl? You know, as five-year-olds are so blunt and so honest. And I said, you know, I, I look like a girl on the outside. That's confusing, but I feel like a boy on the inside. And um, and she said, oh, so you're a boy girl. And I said, yeah, yeah, that, that works. And she said, I'm a girl girl. And I said, yep, I totally see that. And from that moment on, she, she made everyone in the family call me dad. Mm-hmm. And she just was like, okay, this is how it is. And we'll run with it. And um, yeah, so that I, I'm lucky to have a supportive family as well to transition and, uh, live about that in harmony. Yes. And so young that she was so in tune. Yeah. 
talk, Marshall, I want to talk a little bit about your story, but talk um, with the LGBTQ connection, but talk about your decision of you and your wife to adopt. Um, that's really brave. It's brave to be a foster parent. I don't want to say it's braver because I want to rank sort of levels of service, but adopting is a, an, a higher level of commitment. Talk about your decision to adopt five, I believe. Yeah. So we actually went into foster care not really having any plan to adopt, but uh, when when our so our caseworker for the foster parents called her RFC. When the RFC met with us, she said, "I have I have these four kids. Um, would you adopt them?" And we were like, um, "Could we meet them first? You know, um, and and throughout the year." their case kind of flip-flopped several times. Mom, you know, started working more of her her plan. And so it looked like they were, you know, going to go back at one point. And then, you know, and things kind of waned in her participation. And so um, we kind of felt like we can keep them together. Um, and, but you're right, it was, it was a big commitment. And I think it was, it was, um, daunting, but but we felt like we could keep them together, and we thought that was the most important thing. And we weren't sure if if we didn't adopt them, they would um, be split up. So so that was our main reason for adopting them. And then um, and then when our daughter, our youngest daughter, Freedom, came along, um, she just fit in our family, and we actually weren't even um, like I think we were like seventh on the list of people possible um adoptive homes like she had family that was on the list and she had other foster parents that she had been with before and quickly one by one everybody fell out and um and it was left to us and we were so glad because she she really does kind of complete us and and like I said she's the one that you know just said okay this is you know your your dad and so um and yeah, in other placements that we've had, they've been able to go home and, um, and we've been, you know, supportive of that. And, um, but yeah, that's kind of, kind of our story. So the goal of foster care is always reunification. Right. Right. So it's a big ask of our foster parents to come into this with so many unknowns. And you just described that so beautifully. Of sometimes they do say to you, are you open to adoption? We know that's where it's leading, but most of the time they don't know. There's ups and downs. And even in the, your first case with those siblings, it still had ups and downs. You just didn't know that whole year, probably, until until the end. But that's one of the things I find so admirable about our foster parents is it's parenting on fast forward. It's loving and letting go on a timeline that is unpredictable. Yeah. And if you're doing it right, it's hard when you go home. Yep. You know, and that's that's the way it should be. Yeah. Um, you know, you're an LGBTQ parent in Utah foster care, and I don't know if the answer to this question. I think you know there was a. I think legally LGBTQ parents couldn't adopt children in Utah at one point, and that law has changed. Do you know roughly when that law changed? Yeah, it changed in 2013 when the law changed. Uh, when when same sex marriage became legal, because in Utah you had you couldn't be cohabitating, and so um, because of Utah was putting that kind of legally, and that excluded them from um, fostering as well. But because that has changed, that is now open to LGBTQ individuals. Um, single LGBTQ people always could foster; um, they just could be living with someone and it was and not that it didn't happen it did happen um but you know um my wife and I I had transitioned yet and when we had started the process and so um legally I wasn't allowed to, to adopt our first fork so it's really just my wife's name you know on paper um but obviously in you know my heart my obligations they're adopted by me but yeah, and it was because of that law. And we've since been able to get married. So um, 
we were able to adopt our youngest together. And listeners, if I go back to my younger self, I think I probably felt it, and I don't want this to be painful, Marshall, I'm just repenting for my past feelings, is um, I didn't think it was appropriate for LGBTQ parents to adopt LGBTQ kids, because I probably thought being LGBTQ was an undesirable outcome, and it might cause kids to have an undesirable outcome, be LGBTQ. TQ and a parent might even influence a straight kid to be LGBTQ. But the whole assumption in that is it's better for society to have straight people and that is a better outcome. And now I don't feel that way. I feel like society is equally enhanced by having straight people and LGBTQ people and they're on equal footing in society and God's eyes and their ability to be parents. And so in saying all that, I'm repenting for what I've thought in the past and what's changed for me is I've met LGBTQ parents and I've looked at the data and I don't see any data that says an LGBTQ parent is a less good, that's not good English, is not qualified, whatever language, as a straight parent. And there's examples of straight parents that aren't very good parents and LGBTQ people aren't very good parents, but just to pin that all on one group is not, is not you know, well thought out. So I, anybody that is triggered by my prior thoughts and brings up painful memories of the past, I'm sorry about that. But that's just me and my individual journey. So when I hear Marshall, a trans man, I'm talking about raising these kids with his wife, recognize I don't sense anything in Marshall in wanting to say, my story is going to become your story. I'm going to have five LGBTQ kids. Um, I want to validate me as a trans man by having a trans kid. I think it's pretty obvious you have a trans kid because that kid feels that way, not because you've done something to want to have that that cis kid be trans. And you've got three straight kids and so adopted kids, you know, kids. So that's, you know, I can't do the math. Two out of five is 40%. Um, I guess I can do the math. and. That's probably higher than the average for kids, but I know you've got a statistic here where 30% um, nationwide of youth in foster care LGBTQ. So that's a small sample size, just your family of five, but it's not way different than the nation national statistic of LGBTQ. And it makes sense to me that LGBTQ kids might be more likely to be in foster care because the difficult road they walk. Is that okay, Marshall? Anything I said you want to clarify or? Um... No, I actually, it was really, um, I worried a lot about myself being trans and then having a trans child. Just um, exactly what you brought up about people thinking, I'm, you know, I made her trans or I made her transition. Um, and it really, I I was very, very, very cautious about putting that idea into her head. Um, I was really afraid to bring it up with her, but I wanted her to know that, um, you know, because she, at nine years old, she started having major depressive symptoms. And um, we we wanted her to know that what she was feeling, that there was a name for it, you know, but... Um, but we didn't want to influence her in any way. So we really tried to let her take the lead and kind of tell us, you know, so we said, here's the information and, and she, she led the way and she's, she's made those decisions. And um, one thing my wife says, you know, try, try to get a, a 10 year old boy to wear a dress to school, you know, you're, it's not going to happen. No, yeah. it's not. Like we, we, she has always been into hair and makeup and, you know, all of these things that, um, that, you know, typical cisgender girls are into. And, um, she even had an incident at school where she had taken my wife's mascara and was putting it on at school and tried to put it on another boy. And like pinned him down, <laughs> tried putting it on him, and he was fighting her. And, you know, she 
we got a fun phone call about that, but <laughs> that's just who she was. She's always been into that. So, uh, and Richard, I appreciate your perspective in saying this is who I used to be, who I used, what I used to think. And that's one of the things that's unique for me in this friendship with Marshall is Marshall has the version of me that's different than the before version of me and gives so much grace when I can say this is how I thought before and this is how I think now. So so a little bit about my story. My um, middle child is in the LGBTQ community. And I uh, didn't, I wasn't the parent who knew how to navigate those conversations. So backing up a little, I grew up with my cousin who is gay, and that was in the 80s, a gay male in the 80s. I was the only one in our family who knew. We grew up more like siblings. And I carried that for a long time. And then uh, he served an LDS mission and came out after his mission, but he couldn't even do it. He couldn't talk to his mom himself. And so my mom went and said, you know, hey, this is, this is the, what's going on. And, and it, um, I always loved him fully. So my cousin passed away recently. Wow. Um, and I always loved him fully and never thought, it wasn't in my head, this thought of he's less than, or he couldn't be a parent if he wanted to be. And I could never reconcile that with religion. Right, I couldn't reconcile that as an active member of the church, but I just know how fiercely I loved him and how fiercely he loved my children and myself. And I wish I could go back and say to the parent I was, "You've got a child in your own home who is questioning and can't tell you." So, fast forward down the years, now I'm getting my education. I'm getting ready to start working, and this middle kiddo moves out. It still took him a few years, and at that point. Both my husband and I were changing our hearts and our ideas and our thoughts and turning to a new perspective of love and inclusion. Uh, some of that for me was my education. I remember in school reading research studies about outcomes for kids in homes of same sex or mixed gender orientation families and how not only were they not worse, but sometimes they were better because if marriage stability is really strong, that's what matters most for kids. Mm-hmm. And I, that started to open that for me. And I just knew this middle kiddo of mine was struggling. And I was really direct in asking him, um, I should say them. And it took a few years before they were able to officially tell me. And then I was able to tell my husband. And in the meantime, they had been able to share that with uh, some of their siblings who honored that and didn't tell us, but gave them space. And it's been transformative for our family. So we're an interfaith family now, and I have one kiddo on a mission who adores all of his siblings, and our family has been transformed through this journey of having an LGBTQ child to understanding that we have to let go of fear to love. And I brought that to this work with me, and when I started working for Utah Foster Care, my first role was recruiting foster parents and meeting with families. And I remember the first time I went into a home of a transgender woman and her wife, I didn't even know ahead of time and having this conversation and I didn't even know. And then she shared and said, is it going to be a problem that I'm transgender? And I had one of those moments where I stepped out of the world of my role as in Utah foster care and into a mother, right? That was, sorry, around the time my child was finally able to share with me. And, and I said, I hope it's okay if I just ask some personal questions. I have a child who's questioning and I, and could I get some advice? And this beautiful woman just walked me through that. And then he stepped back into, okay, I'll put up back on my Utah foster care hat. And what I've learned I met with over 500 families during the time I was in recruitment. I have a different role now, but I sat in homes, especially with conservative Christian and and LDS families, and I hear their fear because I lived it, right? I lived that fear of what will everyone think of me, which is terrible, but that's a fear that we have to have. 
But I think also, how do I love and do so freely without fear? And Richard, I think this is where you've done such amazing work in the LDS culture. And we meet with foster parents and they say, I don't know if I could take an LGBTQ kiddo. And I don't think most of them are saying, I couldn't love that kid. I think they're saying, what would my community do? Mm-hmm. Right? They're afraid of what yes. will happen. Yeah. Like, uh, what if this child comes in my home and my neighborhood, my community is saying, you can't support that because as you men- mentioned, Richard, we have this idea of less than. The ideal is to be cisgender. And if it's less than that, we don't know what to do with it. And I've had so many conversations with amazing, beautiful people who have been able to shift perspective and say, oh, really, all you're asking me to do is love and affirm that child. Because when children come into foster care, the family has to support that child's religion and culture. So we're saying to them, if this child's Catholic in your LDS, you're going to take this child to Catholic church. You're not going to force your religion on them. And, and people can accept that. And I think if they can accept that, then they can accept it's the same principle. I'm affirming the identity, the cultural, religious, and um, gender identity and sexual orientation of this child. And I hope that for all those who are thinking about foster care, they can understand if I can change, if I can become the parent my child needs, and if I can become the Utah foster care representative that we all need, and I can continue to learn from Marshall, then can't everybody? If everybody had a conversation with Marshall, they'd be like, I'm doing it. It's doable. I can love this child. I can keep them safe. I'm not influencing them to be something they're not. I'm affirming who they are. And it's not a behavior. Right? right? This isn't a child's behavior. It's, it's who they are. It's their, it's their core beliefs. Absolutely. And one thing I love about Tammy is from the moment her, she has been a fierce advocate of learning and educating her, not only herself, but others and helping create a space um, for LGBTQ inclusion um, within the LG, or within the, the foster care community. And that's, it, she, um, she was really the first interaction I had with someone besides myself in our organization that was so focused on making, making things visible and making things supportive and inclusive. Thank you. This is a beautiful podcast. Um, there's personal stories in here, two personal stories. Then there's the the role of um, foster care and your role, Marshall, as a foster parent. I'm thinking for those that are Latter-day Saint and just came out of October General Conference, I'm thinking of Elder Bednar's talk about the last wagon. And um, it's, a, it's a talk about pioneer um, is coming across the plains, and the last wagon is kind of represents one of the toughest roads as a pioneer, because you've got all the dust from the earlier wagons. And he talks about the wagons being all the people within our faith that serve in unknown or unseen or less valued positions. And he mentions few like primary workers. But as I've thought about the context of LGBTQ people, I sort of I don't know if people like this or not, but just this is what I think on my morning walks and meditation and prayers. I think of a kind of an invisible wagon after the last wagon that represents LGBTQ Latter-day Saints and the really difficult road they walk and how they how they're almost invisible sometimes, their needs, um, who they are, and we don't quite even see them as the last wagon. And that and maybe more importantly, their contributions to our faith and our community to heal, to bring more understanding, to be foster parents. And then I think of the allies like Tammy and all of you listeners that are kind of back there with the invisible last last wagon, um, trying to bring more understanding to this group of people. Now, the people in the last wagon aren't 
sometimes in the pioneer stories, the people that get in the wagon are the people that can't walk and they're sick or they've been run over. But I don't think the people in this example are broken. <laughs> um, they're actually full-fledged human beings loved by heavenly parents, created as intended, that are actually can contribute immensely in our faith if given the chance and in our community if given the chance. So I don't know if listeners will like that, but I just think of um, the principle of the last wagon and perhaps sometimes there's even other last wagons that are more invisible. Um, So this is a beautiful love story of you two. And I wish this was a video podcast sometimes, listeners, because Tammy and Marshall just, they're in the same room. And they're like just smiling at each other and supporting each other. And I think of, you know, Jesus is charged to love everybody and um, to see everybody and the work Tammy's needed to do to, to share, get through, you know, to do what she's doing in her own family with an LGBTQ kid. And then how comfortable she is with a trans man. <laughs> and that would have been hard for me 10 years ago, but I would be comfortable with Marshall now and it would have the vocabulary and the lived experience and, and have known trans people firsthand that I don't have fear, perfect love cast without fear. So I wouldn't pull away and be guarded and maybe more importantly could see the way Marshall could is contributing. Um, and our world's better off for people like Marshall. Yeah. Um, I just just I go wherever you, you want to go with this. I'd love you to talk about yeah. Utah Foster yeah. Carrots, the only state agency. Um, you're a nonprofit. You're not an. You're kind of a, not an official state agency, but the only state organization that works with the people that get people into foster care. Well, that gets people out of difficult situations. That then you're the placement agency. The training. Um, there's not multiple um, nonprofits doing this in Utah. It's just your organization. You well, don't place. Because we partner with DCFS, the Division of Child and Family Services, who makes the placements around the state, Utah Foster Care staff sit in on those meetings. We're a partner agency with them. There are other partner agencies with them. They need to have that oversight and advice, like an advisory role as they make placements. So we work directly with caseworkers and the caseworkers for families was think of us as the foster parent organization supporting and training foster parents and therefore the children in care and the state through child protective services and the division of child family services as the child agency and the family agency in the sense that they help the biological parents of children make the changes that they need to in order for kids to come home I hope that gives a good picture of it. But as we hold a contract with the state of Utah and Utah Foster Care was organized in 1999 by uh, Governor Lovett, who, as the child welfare system was in a crisis, pulled together a committee of legislatures and child welfare experts and said, how can we do this better? And then Utah Foster Care was created. So we've been operating for 24 years in this role. Talk about who can become a foster parent. Um, do they need to be married? Could it be a single person? Um, do they have question. to be a certain age? And if I were interested in learning more about becoming a foster parent, what, tell tell our listeners where they, a Utah foster parent, where they'd go. But maybe some of the things you're suggesting here scale to states that our listeners are listening from. Uh, yeah, and it's different in every state. So I would say if you don't live in Utah, you need to reach out to the child welfare agency in your state, because there are states where there are multiple organizations that do the same work, and it's simpler here. So to be a foster parent, you need to be 18. Now, it used to be 21, and they lowered it to 18. Yeah, and we were all like, what? <laughs> and I think the reason is because there's a second type of foster care, which is when family members care for their own, and that's kinship care. And so I think they lower the age in part for that. So you need to be at least 18. You can be single or married, but cannot cohabitate. So we're looking for stability. We talk about what's long-term stability. Marriages prove still over time to be more stable than cohabiting situations. 
And we're taking children out of a traumatic situation and placing them in a home that we want to have stay stable. And just because so far we see that marriage is the most stable, that is why Utah has held on to that as one of the requirements for being foster parent. It can be an obstacle, especially in the LGBTQ community. Many members of that community don't feel like marriage is accessible to them. So there are other ways they can help contribute. But always once someone's married, they absolutely can. Or single. We have some amazing single LGBTQ parents. We really do. So they need to have an income that can provide for themselves and their family without using state assistance. So they're not on food stamps. They're not in subsidized housing. So their income is stable. It's not a number. Uh, it needs to be a certain amount, but it needs to be stable and that they can provide. They need to have a home that has enough space. They can be renting or own a home. It can be an apartment, a town home, a big old house, but it needs to have at least two bedrooms because children need a bedroom separate from the adults in the home. And everyone in the home needs to be able to pass background checks for child abuse, sexual abuse, and be clear of any you know, charge their convictions against persons are the main ones they're looking at. What I'm I think those are the requirements. Then what we would add to that is time. That as you're taking a child into your home who is in that temporary custody, there are going to be a lot of extra appointments because we're working on reunification with our biological parents. So we're going to have extra therapy visits extra visitation. When, have you experienced a lot of visitation? Placement? Yeah. yeah, visitation. So transportation, I guess. Yeah, right. Yes. And at a national and state level, we're emphasizing the importance of regular visitation in order for successful reunification to happen. If children are going home and they haven't had much time with their parents, it's not as possible. So, we at Utah Foster Care are also looking for additional ways we can support families. We know that foster parenting is hard. There is a monthly reimbursement from the state yeah. that helps, but it's not a moneymaker. And <laughs> um, I speak from education. Marshall speaks from experience. Usually <laughs> if you have teenagers, it doesn't even cover the cost of food sometimes. Right? Uh, so... Our foster families get significant support from us through ongoing training. But another piece of that are donations. We have amazing donors and partner organizations out there who are giving experiences and time and fundraising so that we can have additional programs. So at Utah Foster Care, our all of our salaries and our base operating costs come through our contract with the state, but all of the programs that we offer foster parents and the children in their home come through fundraising. And the last couple of years, it has exploded in an amazing way, didn't you say? Yes. Yeah. It really has opened up so many avenues for the kids to have, like you said, experiences, not just things. I mean, uh, we have lots of donors that donate things and that's so needed as well. Um, but the experiences really helps with their trauma, helps with their education, helps with so many it, family connection and bonding, and it really has been amazing. And then we have, um, we call it oh, clinical services. So through funding also, we have clinical staff at Utah Foster Care who are therapists who can help foster parents in addition to what they might be getting elsewhere, which because this is a unique type of parenting, it has its own challenges and we want to support them through those transitions, maybe when reunification is hard or the children in their care, particularly challenging behaviors, we're offering now therapeutic services. And that again comes from donors. How long on average would it take for someone to go from, I think I'd like to be a foster parent to actually becoming a foster parent. And I realize that's going to be a range, but any expectations for listeners? Sure, a minimum is about three months. If you're ready to go, you're going to initiate the process by contacting us. And one of our consultants will work with you. That's what I did for the first two years. 
training is complete they send someone to your home to do the home study and you'll be getting your home ready that whole time you're going to train what kind of things did you have to do to get ready um we just had to make sure that um you know like uh, chemicals and you know dangerous things were away um with our new house you know we had window wells we had to make sure that we had a safe you know covering for them if you you know um just you have a place to lock up medicines and um things that could kids could get into um yeah just just kind of making sure you know railings were safe and window there were escape routes and um just making sure that things are safe how long how long would a typical if i'm not sure i want to adopt and i just say I'm, i'm willing to consider being a foster parent is there sort of an expectation of how long i'm going to have a kid, um, I guess there's a range there. Do you usually try to manage expectations? You you know, be prepared to be a foster parent for this. If you're going to sign up for the program, you've got to be all in for your first, you know, kid for three months, six months. Is any, or is it a is it a kid by kid basis? It's a great question. The answer is both, but we can say the average length of time a child is in care is 13 months before permanency is achieved. So. About, I think we're at almost 70% of the time. Permanency means reunification with their parents or a family member, which is called kinship. So about 20% of the time, permanency ends up being the foster family adopts that child. That's one of those unknowns. So some families do say we are foster only. We would not adopt. Uh, Everybody gets to set the age parameters that they're willing to care for. And you're right, it's about managing expectations. So you come into this, there's going to be unknowns. You can expect a child to be in your home about a year or less. And we won't know if permanency means you could potentially adopt until we're at the end of that case. Um, How is there, what's this, um, this is my business mind, this supply and demand. That's a bad way to characterize kids that need foster parents. But are there more foster parents waiting for um, kids or more kids waiting for foster parents? That's a great question, too. The homes that are waiting for children are homes that have their capacity right now have includes narrow age parameters. So they may say, we're really hoping to adopt and we can take zero to three or zero to five. They will wait longer for children to come into their home. However, we have a high need for homes that will take teenagers. 13 and up is over 50% of children in care. And not that many of our homes are open to teenagers at this point. That might not be what they're ready for. So we need homes also that can take sibling groups. You hear Marshall's story with four siblings. That is not uncommon. So technically, it's hard to answer that. We, I don't love to say we have uh, open homes waiting and say that blanketly. I want to say that intentional, that the homes that are waiting are just because their parameters are not matching the needs of children in care. We desperately need more families who will take older kids, kids with higher behavioral needs and sibling groups. And then we would, then we would have a bunch of babies if we could, if we could get there. And as I'm sure most people have heard, um, Governor Cox and, and the First Lady Abby Cox are very passionate about foster care. In fact, The position that I now have is the Director of Care Communities in partnership. Abby Cox is also my employer, and it's a a support system program 
designed to surround foster families with a community of people that help them. And we're picking the brains of all of our foster parents like Marshall to say, we could surround you with eight to 10 people in your community, in your church, in your social group. What would that support look like so that you can do this hard work of caring for older children or sibling groups? And that's in the pilot stage, that program is. So there's not a whole lot I can give about how that's going other than it's an amazing opportunity to continue to support our families and help with retention. So you've heard Abby talk, I'm sure, about we need to have more homes waiting for children than kids waiting for homes. We have kids waiting for homes because we need more homes with broader age families. So she's right on point with what the needs are. Come up closer to the mic, to the okay. your speaker, Marshall and Tammy. Um, once in a while, you'll cut out. So just talk right. Okay. I'll talk at the screen. Talk at the wherever that mic is. Um, as you say, it's a wonderful opportunity for those that um, maybe want to be involved in foster care, but don't feel like they are at a place where they can foster at the moment, or maybe you know don't want to foster um, because they um, this care community that um, Tammy is working on building is an opportunity for people to be involved in foster care, um, but not necessarily foster. And um, so I think when I started uh, 11 years ago, it was it was like, you know, we had a caseworker and we had our RMC, but really we were pretty much by ourselves and there were a lot of resources we didn't know about. And so we were kind of on our own and how wonderful it would have been to be surrounded by a group of people that um, were, were meant to just support us. I think, um, it, 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 yeah, it definitely would have made the process easier. So it's, it's an awesome opportunity. Um, great shout out to Governor Spencer Cox and Abby Cox. My um, interactions with them, they've become friends. They're just terrific. And they're um, doing everything they can to help groups that are on the margins. Absolutely. Um, and and two of the most genuine people that I've ever met with their desire to use their influence in a positive way, that they're very aware of their stewardship that comes with the positions they have and use it accordingly for the benefit of all. Um, we talked about this before we went live, listeners, but um, if I'm a foster parent and want to um, foster an LGBTQ kid or even the stats on the number of Utah LGBTQ kids. This gets into confidentiality of the individual stories. Talk about why you're not tracking the percent that are LGBTQ and if you could even foster an LGBTQ kid. Everyone who is a foster parent can indicate they're open to caring for children who are LGBTQ. So they give that feedback. They say, I'm absolutely open to that. They might say, again, I have concerns. Can I get more training on that? And we are working on, and this is where Marshall has done an amazing job of connecting with other organizations. We have additional trainings because Marshall has championed those. So if you're unsure, just come and we'll train you to do that. So if you want to care for a, a child in the LGBTQ community, you're going to be letting your, your caseworker know that, and you're going to be reminding them often. I always think for foster families, keep telling your caseworker, who is called an RFC, keep telling them, my age parameters are open. I would love to care for a child in the LGBTQ community. Uh, we don't track the numbers in Utah. I have this explained recently from DCFS. And I respect their reasons why and their concerns are that it, tracking that means that we're potentially exposing that child to being outed before they're ready to be out. And we don't know if their entire biological family and homesteading is safe and secure for that. We don't know that yet. And so we don't track it. We are going by national statistics. However, anyone in child welfare can tell you we're right on par with those or maybe above, which nationally 30% of youth in foster care are LGBTQ. And we can compare that to nine and a half percent of youth nationally just youth not in foster care are LGBTQ. So it's a disproportionate number. Yeah. And it's, it's very common for kids once they get into care to come out. Yeah. 
And so even if you haven't indicated that you are um, open to that, you may end up with a child in care that um, comes out to you because they either finally feel safe or, um, you know, maybe they're away from the people that that they didn't feel like they could open up to. And, and so uh, really, I, I, my hope is that, you know, every home is safe and welcoming and affirming um, of these kids because we don't know when they're going to pop up because we don't track them. That's really helpful. Talk about, um, I'm shifting a little bit. Let's say someone's listening to this podcast. that's actually in a, unsafe situation they're 18 and younger in utah um thinking i gotta get help i need to turn to somebody i'm even wondering if i'm safe in my family and um and walking that really complicated road alone Uh, what advice would you have for a youth that's in an unsafe situation i think the first thing is there's a lot of different types of safety and I hope, my hope would be for anyone listening to this, that you identify adults in your life that you would be safe sharing things with. But teachers are great. Teachers are have some additional training. They're one of the main reporters in Utah. Uh, police officers, community leaders, I hope. If you're in a religious community, you could go to your religious leader and they would take appropriate steps. Uh, I would hope that if you went next door to your neighbor, they would do the same thing. But but ideally, there's a lot of places that any child can go and say, I'm not safe and I need help. A couple of years ago, we developed the Safe Home Pledge, which you can find on our website at utahfostercare.org slash LGBTQ. Um, and it really is for anybody who um, wants to let people know in their homes, anyone that comes from our home that that it is a safe home and um and hopefully you know if 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 you there is a child in your life that doesn't feel safe at home by having that up they they know that you're a safe person and so they can um confide in you or come out to you um, to get the support and help that they need and you can go on our website um it's free to download um, and you can take the pledge and, and download it. We've got a great little graphic that you can put up and display. That's really helpful. Um, you know, one of the themes of this podcast is we hit it before a little bit is just back to my earlier days of thinking LGBTQ parents wouldn't be good parents. And that was not based on fact, that was based on fear and never meeting LGBTQ parents. and thinking their existence was sort of an undesirable outcome in society. So how could they be effective parents? But I, in saying all that, you know, I hope we've come to the point because our, our, the science and um, the smart people writing laws seem to think LGBT people being great parents. And some of the words you've used, Marshall, both of you is nurture, care, um, just um, stability, teaching values. And so, As I look at our own marriage, my wife and I, those are the things that we've tried to bring into our marriage for our kids, stability, nurture, growth, help our kids self-determine their best path forward in life and love them. Um, We don't have any LGBTQ kiddos, so we don't know that road directly, but um, I, I just, you know, I go back in history, listeners, we've just had lots of times where fear based narratives have driven our thinking. I go back to the Salem witch trials to be dramatic and um, how we felt about interracial marriage, how we felt about lots of different social issues before taking the time to really uh, meet people that we're forming opinions about. So, uh, Marshall, you're really brave <laughs> um, to be your authentic self, to be um, working for Utah foster care, to be a foster parent. Um, I'm not a perfect parent. You're not a perfect parent, but I sense you really care. And this yeah. is out of love to want to support people. And I think of the work you're both doing and everybody at Utah Foster Care. And I think of Jesus saying, if you've done it unto the least of me, you've done it unto me. And kids in foster care often 
walking really complicated roads. They have complicated family situations. They can be survivors of all types of abuse. And they need the type of stability that foster parents can offer. And your work to bring um, those families to help these kids is just, to me, consistent with what Jesus invited us to do. And some of those couples are going to be straight. Some of those couples are going to be a mix. And I just think we am inviting us all to mature as a society to recognize that LGBTQ parents can be terrific kids, terrific parents. And some of this language that's driven by political ideology, that's really hard for me to say out loud, that you're groomers, um, that people want to groom straight people to be gay, and this isn't a political agenda. And that can, that's really painful for me to say and hear because it's just fear-based narrative to try to get community around fear that can generate political capital, maybe political donations and votes. Um, and I've been susceptible to that in the past, to be honest, and I'm trying not to do that anymore. And so when I hear this sort of politically charged ideology, I try to be a little slower and try to talk to people that were um, claiming to be the enemy and really try to understand what's really going on here. And, and perfect love casts without fear. So I invite us to, to tone down, to be, to not, it's easy to sort of get caught up in the latest threat to the family. Um, and I don't look at Marshall and his wife as a threat to my family. <laughs> um, I look at the work you're doing and your ability to be effective foster parents and now adopting kids and their lives are better in my feeling for your love and support and nurturing in their lives. And I have many friends that are in same sex marriages that are able to have children, um, biological children. I don't look at that as a negative outcome, um, assuming they have the principles that other, that other healthy marriages have. Um, and I just leave that at the Savior's feet and recognize that kids need support of loving parents in their life. And there's a deficit of that. So I'm grateful for foster parents that step forward and people that adopt. And whenever I talk about trans, on this podcast, if you're not a regular listener, because I'm so sensitive to this because of the political ideology, I, and I'm taking more time than I usually do, Tammy and Marshall, but episode 631 is, is Cammy and Dave Martin talking about um, their son, Levi, who died by suicide. Um, it's episode 231, and they came from the church and found a suicide note, and they've shared that note with me. And they were doing everything they could to support this trans kid. They did a great job. Um, just terrific. But one of the phrases, one of the sentences in this note, and I'm reading it right from the note in Levi's writing, I am terrified how society treats trans people. And you are nodding your head, Marshall. You know that personally. And so this is an And then the suicide note goes on. This is not the fault of any of you. Um, meaning his family, who was so supportive. And so if you want to learn more about their story, you can scroll back to episode 631. But we need to dial down the rhetoric. And trans people who are walking a harder road need to be encircled with love and positive comments about them, support. Um, they don't need to be the subject of our negative comments. Um, they are some of God's finest children, and they are on that empty um, cart at the end of whatever I said it was, wagon, not because they chose to be there, because sometimes we put them there. Um, and they may be injured and broken because of our words, and we need to do everything we can to support them. So I don't, you're, I don't know if you've got any comments on that, Marshall, since you are walking this road, this is the reality of your life, or any other comments either of you want to share? Yeah, I, I like what you said. Like, I, I don't think if if, uh, if the brokenness is there, it's it's not there because of their identity or their sexual orientation. It's because of it's because of what is um, mirrored back to them from society, and um, that that is very hard. And I I feel very lucky and blessed. I. I know my road is not uh, typical for a trans 
person. Um, I've always fell into really supportive communities and uh, workplaces. Um, and I've been extremely blessed by that. I know that is not typical. And I think as a parent, I, um, my, my biggest fear for my daughter is that uh, is how she will be received in the world. And, um, it's not her transness. It's how people will respond to her. Um, and, uh, and that, that's what I worry about most for her. And, uh, but hopefully things are getting better. I know it feels like it's getting worse, but I think that's a small majority that are just really loud. And we need to remember that, um, I think as a society, we are moving towards more acceptance and more inclusion and um, more understanding, both, um, you know, academic understanding, you know, I think we still have a lot that we're going to learn and discover, but, um, but I think we need to remember that, that most people are accepting and and loving and will be supportive and we we don't need to be afraid of those pieces that's beautifully said and i would add that the holdup from being accepting is usually fear and as a parent and someone who is an active faithful member of the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints i know our church is filled with good people who, if they sat with Marshall and, or maybe went to his house and played some board games with him, and God, <laughs> they're really great at that. Um, there's, there's not one part of us that has that fear when we connect and we hear someone's story and we sit across from them. But, but we take that fear into worrying about how the outcome might look to others and how, what that might mean about us as a parent, if our child or family member is living the less than ideal. It's it's hard not to feel that you failed, and that's where my personal growth has come in. That's in my personal life has spilled over. Thankfully, at the time in my life when I have a career in child welfare and get to work with other people and help them shift perspective, and that's what I would invite everyone to do: that you can overcome that fear, and that once we overcome it, love is all that's left. And it's the most powerful force there is. Whether you're religious or not, all people have light and love and goodness that is the same. We call it different things. But I can sit across the table from an evangelical Christian or an atheist or any one of any belief system and see that love and goodness and light. And that's what we work with, with each other. That's what we need. And take fear out and step right into that. Well, that's all that's there that's left. And that's, that's what overcomes. Yeah. Yeah. And you can see why um, the First Lady chose Tammy as the care community's coordinator because she brings that to, um, to everything that she does and um, is going to make a huge difference for kids and reuniting all of these different groups and uh, yeah, it's amazing. And I've told my my husband and my children this, but I told them this after every interview. So I had three interviews for the position, and I would leave everyone saying, "I am here in this seat at this table because of you, because of who you helped me become, and what love does." And my children know I'm not perfect. I think they can talk to me about anything, especially that middle kiddo. We have conversations where. Uh, I hope, and I hope that they continue to do that. I hope they continue to authentically share their life with me. That's what we all need. That's what all foster parents need is a supportive community. That's what all children in care. That's what their biological parents need. And we can all do it. There's nothing special about it. (laughs) We can all do it. I disagree, but I I agree that we can all do it. We We all have the capacity. We do. We all have the capacity. Um, listeners, I'm just so moved by uh, Marshall and Tammy and the work they're doing, the need for this work and their unity. I've, I love um, 
the idea that Zion is unity um, and diversity and taking all our diversity and using it to lift the hands of the poor, those that are downtrodden. And I think when we come together in our differences for common goals, we're able to do more than we could just in sameness. And I've thought a lot about the city of Enoch. I wrote about this in my third book, that perhaps even the city of Enoch, the benchmark of a Zion society, still had differences in tribal customs or land usage or water rights. I don't know, but we do know <laughs> they were unified and there were no poor among them. And poor among them would be, in our what day, kids needing foster care yes, and kids that are in tough situations. So um, I'd like to everybody that's involved in this world of foster care from DCF, DCFS to utahfostercare.org that you two are speaking from. We'll link your organization to show notes to teachers and police officers and those and people that man, man, woman, <laughs> helplines, the most vulnerable. Thank you for all you're doing. And if you're in foster care, I've thought about you. Um, your life is probably different than kids not in foster care. Um, but I think this experience um, helps you in your life to help others. It's, you know, it's a, I've never been in foster care, so I'm not speaking from this first person, but you can have wonderful parents like Marshall and his wife. And whatever caused you to be in foster care, have hope that that won't become your story for your kids. That whatever breaking of the cycle or whatever the right vocabulary is in general terms, have hope that you will learn from this experience and you won't become whatever led you to foster care. If that was a negative parenting situation, that you can um, be effective, um, wonderful parents, and maybe even more perceptive to the needs of your kids because of your own difficult journey. Um, so if that's part of your road. <laughs> have hope that you're going to be okay. Um, and you you may need therapists to work through trauma, and you may need the Savior to help heal, um, but have hope that you um, can be and will be a wonderful member of society and a wonderful parent. Um, Tammy said something really wonderful as she's talked about her story. She says, after the fear is gone, uh, is gone love is all that's left. And that was a beautiful off-the-cuff statement, Tammy. And um, that's certainly some of my journey. The groups I used to have fear from, I don't. I have less fear in my life of other humans. And your LDS, perhaps that's easier doctrine for us to own because we all believe we're the same spirit children of the same heavenly parents, and we all live together in the pre-earth life. Um, we all voted for the same plan. So if we go to that version of the human family, we start to see everybody in the same. Maybe in the eyes, Tammy and Marshall are inviting us. Um, I love to, I'm going to close with this quote, unless either of you have anything to say. Oh, thank you. Just thank one, you. this is Thomas Merton, who I think is a Catholic priest. Our job is to love others without stopping to inquire whether or not they're worthy. That is not our business. And in fact, it's nobody's business. What we are asked to do is to love and that love itself will render both ourselves and our neighbors worthy. So you two are great practical, not theoretical saying, this is a nice thing to do, but you're doing this in real life. Um, and I'm deeply moved by your story. So listeners, thank you for Tammy Carson, C-A-R-S-O-N. There's no L in there, even though I want to put an L in there. And Marshall Shearer, S-H-E-A-R-E-R, -E -E for being on the podcast. And the show notes will link to utahfostercare.org. Thank you, Marshall and Tammy. Thank you, Richard. Thanks.